I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 156 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, we take a journey from the jam to the style council to Paul Weller solo via two super fans who have some incredible connections with the Weller setup. What you're going to hear is a wonderful love story from David Rowe, a story that kicks off with him and his partner, Joe White, meeting at school in 1978 and forming a great friendship through the music and live performances of the jam. We'll take a journey through some of the 450 live shows that they've shared together and a wonderful connection during the Star Council years when they started ad hoc merchandising work for Brian Hawkins. He's the fellow who'd done the jam merchandise before moving on to the Star Council. So we're talking selling programs after gigs, gradually getting to the point where they're helping to set up. They're traveling with Brian all over the country, even to the US during the Paul Weller solo years as well. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it. David Rowe, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, and I can see why we need you on, right? Because the, all the merchandise there that's in the background, all the posters, yeah, yeah. the stuff from Weller, from Heavy Soul to The Weaver to Friday Street to The Movement. Yeah, you love this fella, presumably, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's weird, really, because it's, uh, yeah, it is a, it's a love of Paul Weller's music, you know, and and the bloke, you know, and it's also my partner as well. We're, we're both in Tawella. Yeah, we were both in Tawella and it's a proper love, love story, really. We first met in 78. We met at school. She'd come down from London and it was her first day at school. She walked into this history class that we, that I was in and she didn't have her school uniform. So she had her monkey boots and her Levi's and her Fred Perry. And I think I wasn't really that much into that sort of move into I was into ELO and you know stuff like that you know I, don't, I love a bit of ELO but you know <laughs> but she was she was a, a bit ahead of me like you know but it was like that was my year of, of change really because you know then all my cons and the whole two-tone thing we just both 
went with that really. We were just, uh, but that was where I first met her. We were both getting into the sort of quadrophenia and the mod thing. So it was a bit of a, the mod revival thing as well that came along and just the energy of the music really. Joe went to see the jam in, I think it was in uh, London in 1980. That was her first gig. I think April 1980. I think Hammersmith. I had to wait a bit bit longer for my first gig. But I think once you saw the jam live, they were just so di- Oh, it was just a, a a wall of sound that, you know, how can three people make this noise, you know? And it was um, the whole crowd thing. It was just full on. And I think we just got that bug from there on. I love the fact that, I mean, whenever anybody has been on this podcast and they start talking about the jam live, they all, I mean, then there's no exception from John Wilson to Billy Bragg to yourself. They all go a little bit misty eyed <laughs> yeah. and, and you're taken back there to your youth yeah, and, be, and being in it, right? Yeah. My first gig was at the Cornwall Coliseum, which is sadly no, no more. But it, yeah, it just takes me right back there to those gigs. It's funny because it takes you right back there, but they were a blur. They're a blur now, obviously, but just that whole sort of like, uh, yeah, here's standing up on the back of your neck kind of feeling that, and I can still get that when I listen to, uh, dig the new breed loud, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you're there. It's amazing that, isn't it? And I also think, I guess the special thing is there's you and your schoolmates. You're all connected. You're all, yeah. Get, you know, and then you're talking about it the next day in school and all that yeah. stuff as well, yeah. isn't it? Joe went to a lot of gigs. Although she'd moved down from London, she used to go back up to London quite regularly and see her friends and her dad had a contact, Albert, who ran the Chanticleer Club, which was like the Tottenham Club, which was part of the White Hot Lane. And they, I think they lived in the same road. So he used to get Joe tickets for, I think she did two Hammersmiths, the So Bells, like, you know, those, all those great London gigs. And then she used to come back with a poster for me and stuff like that. I mean, thank goodness we've got this connection around the merchandise that we will get onto, because otherwise yeah. people listening to this will be going, hold on, why have you got him? Why is Joe not on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When um, it was um, early during the jam days, Joe and her friend did a day trip to Woking. And I think someone else mentioned it on another podcast. I think it was a fan, uh, American maybe. Oh, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Steve Steve Henders. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah. And like they went off to Woking from St. Austell. Recently, I was in the loft having a little bit of an exploration and I found her train ticket and stuff up up there in the loft. And and, that's So, yeah, they, her and her friend went to Woking. They got to the station and, uh, again, before Google Maps or anything like that, got the directions to 44 Balmoral Drive, headed there, knocked on the door, and Weller opens the door. <laughs> oh, hello, girls, come in. Brilliant. Paul's washing, just, you know, like... Just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ignore his pants hanging yeah. on the line there. He's just, they've just come back from a uh, tour of Scandinavia, like, you know, and come in, sit down, like... T-shirts, key rings, you know, badges, sit down, have a cup of tea, Jaffa cakes, you know. The, and this is a band that's had two number one. At the time, I think they'd had two number ones and a, like, a string of hits. It's, yeah. I mean, that is, it is like, bonkers, isn't it? You, you think about that. And she said like... to them, um, oh, um, do you know where Bruce's mum lives? And they said, no, no. She said, oh, go around to Bruce's mum. So they, <laughs> she's, she's got an envelope from the fan club and she's, <laughs> drawn a hand drawing of um the directions from Balmoral Drive to where um Bruce's mum dad lived. Wow. I found that up in the loft as well, like the 
than uh, some other stuff. Club. This is wonderful. Oh, we have to and, see uh, this. So stuff, they then went to Bruce's mum and dad's and uh, sat and had a cup of tea there and spoke to, I think it was, oh, I've forgotten their names now, Nellie and someone I think Bruce's mum was called. But she was a refugee during the war and she got um, moved to St. Austell. So there was, it was, it was kind of weird. There was a lot of connection there. But while they were talking, Bruce walks in and sits down and chats and, and leaves, like, you know, and it's like, oh, you, you just couldn't make it up really. Did you? <laughs> that is mental. And then, and then they get back, go back home to, on the train and for such a big band to still be so open. I think her diary says Anne opened the door and I think Nikki was there as well. Yeah. They, they ended up with loads of merchandise and. That's mad though, isn't it? Because you think, like you say, this access, you'd have thought usually, you know, a band starting out, you can understand. I get that, right? But when they hit the big time, everything usually, right? Everything closes and you don't get that access. You don't get the access in the sound checker before the gigs and backstage. And, but certainly not knocking on the door, (laughs) the mum inviting you in, you know? Yeah, I know. It's like, it's unheard of, isn't it? Yeah. You wouldn't have those details of an address, like, you know? And just the contact that um, you would write to Anne and say, do you know the dates of the next tour? And she would write Anne right back to you. Like, you know, it's yeah. like, it, it is amazing. And, and when you see the number of people that were doing that. There I mean, wasn't like 20 people in a fan club, right? It's like thousands. The openness and the sort of like, um, it wasn't a fake sort of thing. It was just a very, very open, much openness that they had as a family, I think, you know. John's like it as well, like, you know. Clearly, that has also helped to, to those connections are even deeper because of that yeah, personal yeah. connection, right? It's not yeah. just the band and their music and stuff, but the access that you had to the bands yeah. and to the parents and the family, you felt like you were part of it, didn't you? Yeah. I think the first gig we went to together, she was going to Shepton Mallet to see the jam on the, I think it might have been Transglobal Express tour. And she was going with her mate and her dad was driving her from Cornwall up to Shepton Mallet. I heard they were going, so I asked them if I could have a lift, like, and uh, said yes. So that was the first gig that we sort of travelled together with, too, really. I had to buy my ticket off a tout for a 10 quid. <laughs> it was ridiculous now, didn't it, you know? <laughs> That's where we sort of, like, started. And then we, obviously, the jam split, and we did a lot of gigs. Well, a lot of gigs. We did the Wembley shows on that farewell tour, Beat Surrender tour. And we did um, Sonostal Coliseum. That was the third time they played their third and final time. And then we we had tickets for Guildford, which was cement- meant to be the final gig. And then they added Brighton on the end. So, like we did this mad thing in like the enemy small lads, where we swapped our um, Guildford tickets for Brighton tickets, which, as it happens, was probably not the best move because the Guildford gig was probably the better gig. And the Brighton gig, they opened the doors and let everyone in anyway. Yeah, wonderful. So this friendship's formed, this yeah. love of this band, this connection. But then there must have been this feeling like, you know, suddenly Paul announces the band's going to be no more. Yeah. Well, there must have been a bit of like, what happens to their friendship now? Because this is the big connection, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I must say by then we, we were already pretty much more connected than that. You know, we'd both gone vegan and we both like, uh, we were more into the politics, C&D, they were big, big for us. And that was one of the attractions with the jam and with Weller, the political side of it, as well as the musical side of it. At the time, that was, that just meant the diff- all the difference. I mean, the same with the specials and all those bands, you know, political side of it was part and parcel of it, really. 
And was the the type of music then that the Style Council obviously are very different? I mean, so diverse. We're, we're mixing jazz and yeah. pop and soul. And I was funny enough, I've just been rattling through the singles for the Style Council because I'm, I'm hosting an event tomorrow. Every singles, I mean, that first run of singles, there's like five singles before you get to Cafe Blur. Yeah. Every one is just so different, so diverse, so yeah. unique, isn't it? And that's why I think there's a lot of chatter. There, I guess there always will be a lot of chatter about, oh, Paul didn't need to split the jam. He could have done this with the jam, but I'm not certain that that could have happened really. You know, I think he, he had to draw that line. And I think that even the Chippenham Gold Diggers gig showed that in a way with the, you know, with all the mods down the front, you know, we are the mods, we are the mods, you know, and like, which he was trying to move away from that sort of very blinkered view of what mod was. And he was taking us to this, you know, European modernist, thing that was just so much broader and 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 so much more interesting in a way you know because it was um it just opened up all that fashion and again the fashion comes into politics and the music as well the, the further along this journey of the podcast i get the more you start thinking about these things as you hear from so many different perspectives and it's also that feeling i get now of that that drawing a line under the jam to leave that legacy. Because yeah. ultimately, if he went off in this different direction, doing the jazz and even rapping, with, you know, if he was part of the jam, yeah. that might have just disdained that. Whereas now it's, it's boxed, it's that time period, it's, it's in a capsule. You can't yeah. mess with that. No, 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 you're right. Let's talk about some of these closer Weller connections then and pick up on the story of the merchandising and, and how you came to get involved with that. That happened in the sort of like probably after a couple of Star Council tours because we did so many gigs. It kind of makes makes me laugh when I see people on the telly and they say, and they're interviewed or they're, they're on some quiz show or something and they they say, oh, yeah, we've, we're super fans. We've seen him, uh, we've seen Elton John like four times or something like that, you know. Yeah. And it always makes me laugh because I think, we're probably in the 400s, maybe 500s. <laughs> That's mental, isn't it? But also to still be fans, because yeah. sometimes I mean, there's, there's that overkill, isn't there, where you've just had too much of a good thing, you're like, do you know what? I we weaned off a bit in the last few years, but um, yeah, those early Star Council tours, we did, we did every gig on those tours. There were a few people that we used to see regularly on those tours, a guy called Carly, from Scotland, and then when we went and did the Scottish gigs, we'd stay at his mum's. And then um, Keiko, who was a big fan, she had, her, I think, she had her own uh, little case at the uh, the exhibition in Brighton. Yes, she did. Yeah. So people like that that we used to see around, and um, and it was just great fun doing those gigs. And I think really because we used to do those gigs, we used to see Brian the merchandise guy, Brian Hawkins. We used to see him quite a bit before the gigs. And I think like a couple of times it may have been like, you know, raining and we would help him in. I'd help him in with boxes and stuff like that that he was unloading. And then one day we just came out of one of the gigs. And we used to, quite often, because we were travelling around, we were getting late trains back to London and stuff like that. And I was living in Cornwall at the time as well. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was like, it was pretty, pretty mad. British Rail was seemed... So much more affordable then, though, because those first couple of tours, like I say, I was in I was in Cornwall, and Joe moved to London two days before the Chippenham Gold Diggers Sight and Sounds gig. So her Style Council life was was in London, and mine was in Cornwall. For that Sight and Sound gig, we met up in Chippenham and went to the gig. We'd heard that there was a gig going on, but we didn't 
like you know, before the internet and all that, like the, mm. all you had was the music press, really. So Joe had done loads of phoning around BBC and managed to track down the Whistle Test studio. And uh, she was she was speaking to this guy called Nick, who said he would put two tickets in the post. And on the day of the gig, I'm down in Cornwall, going round to her old place. She's moved to London, waiting for the postman because the tickets still haven't arrived. <laughs> then I have to go to a phone box and call her from a 10p to say, tickets haven't arrived. What, what are we going to do? Like, you know, so she then phones the whistle test studio number she had, speaks to Nick, and he says, don't worry, I'll put you on the guest list. You know, Of course, that was like, we didn't even really consider that. It was like, oh, my God, our tickets haven't arrived. What are we going to do? So we turn up. We'd already been to loads of questions gigs by then, and um, Frank Mooney was playing percussion at that, on that gig. So we bumped into him. And he said, oh, you're all right. You? And we said, yeah, well, we're, we think we're, we're on the guest list, but we haven't seen this guy, Nick, yet. And he said, I'll put you on the band's list anyway. We ended up being on the guest list twice. <laughs> and we stood in that hall. We didn't leave then. We just stayed in there and we watched the sound check and we, and we watched the, uh, the interview that Weller did with, I think it's Richard Skinner. And then it was the, a few days later, the tour started. I'm not sure if it was Glasgow Apollo on that tour which was the last night of that tour. They did this thing with the Star Council. With the jam gigs, there was a big sound check where people were allowed in, which they didn't really do with the Star Council. But they did do this sort of meet, sort of informal meet and greet thing after gigs. So like a, a small band of people would end up forming around the front of the stage. And Chris, the security guy, would come and march you backstage. <laughs> I love the and, fact you know the names. <laughs> yeah, and Paul, and Paul and Mick would be sat there in the dressing room and you would sort of like go through and get your autographs, have a chat, take photos. And sometimes Steve White would be there. Sometimes uh, Steve Sidelnik would be there, you know, the, uh, you know, different people just be around like, and, and so they used to do that quite often. It was, it was quite ad hoc. Sometimes they didn't do it, but right. after the Glasgow Apollo gig, I found my diary for that year recently, and it's got this little um, note in it saying that I was uh, I was nearly chucked out of the gig because I had a camera, Kodak Instamatic camera, like you know, and <laughs> and I, they tried to chuck me out for taking photos. But Jill, Paul's partner at the time, was working on the merchandise store, and she saw them trying to march me out, and she took the camera on the merchandise stall and they let me back in. <laughs> and after that gig, we went backstage and this is so like so many people in your podcast have sort of said this, that he said, oh, I think I remember you from the gold diggers gig. You were down the, in the hall. And I, he said, I nearly came down to, to say hi, but, um, but we were doing the interview and um, yeah, I, I nearly came down because I really liked your pink Lacoste cardigan you were wearing. Oh, result. <laughs> so, you know, this is like two or three weeks later and he, he remembers a face or, a, you know, and that, I think that's what he is very, very good at, you know. As a fan, that was like, oh my God, you know. I love the fact, um, so Tufty, who you'll know, who's been on the podcast, yeah, and, yeah. you know, has this phrase about, I think it's Elton John he uses, but it's like, could you imagine that happening with Elton John? And it's like, well, no, actually, I couldn't. And even now, you say, funny enough, I was in Paradiso, um, when was it? A couple of months back. I was there on the Sunday night and he was playing two nights, a Sunday and Monday. Didn't come out on the Sunday. Didn't come out to say hello to the fans on the Sunday. But on the Monday, of course, 
when I wasn't there? Of course he did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm feeling like he's now stringing me along. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like cat and mouse. It's like Tom and Jerry, you know. Little events like that where we knew Jill and Brian and, and Nikki was often working on the merchandise as well with um, Janelle and Sonia. They were the other two that were always doing the merchandise. And one day we went back to get our bag and Brian said, oh, would you mind uh, selling a few programs? Yeah, no, and he had money belts ready. So we whipped on these money belts and I went by one of the doors and Joe went to the other door and we just shouted, programs, programs, and we just gave it the, like, and it was just amazing how many we sold in just that, that emptying of the hall, you know, at the end of the gig. And I think it sort of like clicked with Brian, really, that it was a miss. These people are just walking out the door. They look at the merchandise store with like crowds of people around it and they just yeah. think, oh, I can't really be bothered. But but if it's there right in front of them, then they were buying a program. Like, you know, so so we, we probably sold like 100 or so programs that would have just walked out the door that time. I think it was like, um, and then from then on, we just started doing that. And it just became more and more regular. The gig program seems like now, it seems like such an old-fashioned type yeah, of thing, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. But they are beautiful. I mean, I've been collecting, I had the solo ones from the, the Match Day program. We'll get into the solo years in a bit. But um, I've been going back and getting, you know, off eBay or whatever, the old ones, because they, they're really helpful for research, if nothing else, right? But uh, but just to have them as a collector's thing is lovely. And you can't imagine going to gigs. This is still a thing, going to gigs. I mean, it's certainly not a Weller thing now, but I don't, I've not seen this any gig in recent years. No, no, I don't know. And they're great, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it is a lost thing. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, it's weird. But they are, they are a, they're great to look back at. Obviously, some of them are better than others. But, but yeah, but it's a real, it real kind of captures that moment in time, yeah, it doesn't does, it? You know? does. Especially with a band like the Star Council, that, you know, there was so much change going on there that it, it did capture a time. And the early, mm. the early Weller movement stuff as well and the early yeah. solo stuff. But yeah, so that's where we really got into it. We got into the, that's how we got into the merchandise and we would like do that regularly. We, we were still buying our tickets, but it became like we would buy our tickets and then because of the start of the tour, we didn't really know if we were going to be doing it or not. Like, you know, so we would buy our tickets anyway because we wanted to go to those gigs and we didn't want to leave it a chance. And then we would, um, we would see Brian and we would, sometimes we would get there before him and he, he had a big case that, that went around with the, with the crew. They took it from gig to gig and it had all the merch in it. They would wheel it out to the front of the house and then we would open it up and put the display up. And, and in the end, it just became like for a few tours, it was just us and Brian, really. And it was the best of times. It was just like, I haven't seen Brian for years now, but um, they were just great, great memories. He was quite a cheeky like bloke, Brian. He, he just loved to laugh and he, and he loved to drink and he loved to wind up. He, he was just... Uh, he was just good fun to be around, that's for sure. I think the one, the interesting thing as well, when you think about the merchandise, it does seem, it does kind of play a really significant role in connecting the fans with the band. And even the other day, I was wandering around and I got my Villagers t-shirt on, you know, showing off that I, I love this band as well. Is it a band? I don't know. Connor, is he a, I don't know. Anyway, let's not go down that route. Do you know what I mean? It's like you want to show yeah, off yeah. who you love. And the, and the tour yeah. t-shirt is a way of not just showing off the band that you love, but the fact that, you know, I went, I went to see him live as well. I paid extra, you know. Yeah. That's lost a little bit now, but it, it was certainly, I think that's where probably because music's changed quite a bit and like it was, it was just like wearing a badge. It was like, um, back in the, in the sort of seventies and eighties, there was a whole, you liked one thing or you liked the other thing. And, mm. and you know, there was a lot more sort of like culture. There was a lot of different like music genres that you, you, you couldn't like one and the other. You had to just like one. And, um, and I think music's got a little bit more open now. 
but I think it does mean that we've lost those sort of like um, distinctive sort of like fashion that follows music. Yeah, so that tribal kind of thing. Yeah, that has gone to some degree now. And I think probably the T-shirt has gone a little bit because of that as well. I just know Brian talking about hundreds and hundreds of T-shirts they sold at jam gigs. It was like nearly every other person in that hall would buy a T-shirt, at least one T-shirt. I don't know what Brian is doing these days. He told me this story when he was he had a, um, a duffel bag full of like cash after a gig. He went to some, I think it was a, that might even been the day after, and he was at a he was at a swimming pool, and he left it in the he left it in the changing room on the seats in the changing room. Went into the pool, and then suddenly thought, "Oh my god!" I've, and came back, and it was still there. But it could not have been there. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like thousands and thousands of pounds. Like so, yeah, he was he was a character. Yeah, I've been trying. His ears on my list, and I think you might have mentioned yeah. this is Brian Hawkins, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I know. He's, I know he's on Twitter, or somebody's on Twitter, but I, I've managed to connect. So, Brian, if you're listening, yeah, we'd love you on, man. That'd be great. Yeah, he'd be a good chat. And presumably, you know, some, because the gigs that I went to, um, you know, probably early nineties, you'd always get the, you know, the bootleggers, the pirates outside the venues at the front as well. Was there any of that going on in the eighties or was it kind of exclusively yours for the style council? There was a lot going on, a lot of that going on in the eighties. There was the general election tour, Costa Loving. I think that was probably the first tour that we, we had our access all area laminates. And it was like, oh my god! Like you know, not that we ever used them to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Except if I was there, Brian would send me back to I think to to wind Kenny up. Brian would send me back stage to uh, fill up an ice bucket for a bottle of champagne, and we would have a bottle of champagne on the on the <laughs> merchandise store, which was probably <laughs> looking back at it, it was probably not a good look. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is how many T-shirts we sold, folks. Look. <laughs> yeah, that's where where it was heading, like you know, and. Um, so yeah, that's the only time I probably used that, other than to you know walk around the hall like. But yeah, so that on that tour, yeah, we did have quite a few incidents with touts. They would be pretty aggressive in their sort of like coming into the hall. They would come into the foyer and try to sell in the foyer and like try to make people think they were official. And the first night of that tour was down at Newport. I think they did two nights at Newport. This was a weird thing. Merchandise was so small. Th- such a sort of like um, low-key thing then at gigs, really. I mean, it, it was selling a lot of merchandise, but the hall never really took a cut of it or the manager would come out and you'd give him a couple of sweatshirts and a few T-shirts for one of his children who liked the band or something, and, and that would be it. Um, down at Newport, Brian's giving the guy a couple of T-shirts and he's like saying, oh, is there any chance you can open the pool for us after the gig? And then the second night, the guys opened the pool, like he's only given him a couple of sweatshirts, like, and the guys opened the pool for us. So after the gig, and it's a shame it wasn't the band as well, but it was just me, Joe, and Brian went for a swim in the Newport Centre pool. <laughs> like, you know, I was, again, I found the pictures there. <laughs> so but, funny, uh, looking at me. But us on the slide, like coming down the water plume and things like, you know, it's like, uh, and then on that same tour, they did, I think it was four nights at the Albert Hall, and that was the first time I. Na- there was a real change in the merchandising thing. In that, the I think they did, they did it for quite a while at the Albert Hall anyway, where they they actually sold the gear. You didn't sell the gear. Okay. You basically just handed it over to them uh, to sell. That's what they wanted us to do, and you just did a deal where they took a cut. And I'm pretty sure it was that tour where um, Brian 
didn't get a good deal with them. So he ended, we ended up selling the merchandise from a porter cabin outside because he, he just said, no, I'm not having that. And that's really? <laughs> like crazy. It's like, so it's like bootlegging his own gig. <laughs> so we spent like all of the afternoon peering up the general election socks. You know, they, they did a sock at that, on that tour. So I know some people have, I've seen pictures of them <laughs> yeah. on Twitter. Like, and, um, we would sit there in this porter cabin in the afternoon peering. They all came like as one just big bag of socks. So we would pair them up like an all afternoon, but. Because we were selling outside, we were at, we were amongst sort of like the touts and stuff. So Brian hired a couple of security guys and a bloke with a dog that to to keep the touts away from the sort of private bit around the Royal Albert Hall, and that did get pretty nasty. There was uh, the same sort of the same touts like would, or you know unofficial merchandisers would follow a tour as well because obviously they had them all, all these t-shirts. Yeah, of course they're doing the whole run, right? So you're seeing them every night. So I think we were like pretty well tooled up in the white transit that we were driving around with for the rest of that tour because it did get a little bit nasty. And at this point, the Style Council in live, they do start winding down a little bit after, you know, 87, don't we? Again, it's quite sad, like, really. We were just getting into it, like, you know, and uh, and that was the last, you know, the, I think there was the Ren- Renaissance tour after that, quite a small little tour, but I think that was pretty much it then. Yeah, well, 88, I think we don't get a tour. We yeah. just get a benefit. And then, you know, we get Japan in 89 and the, yeah. and the infamous Royal Albert Hall gig. So you mentioned the Royal Albert Hall. Were yeah. you at that final one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found my little Harvey Goldsmith VIP pass to that the other day. What are your memories of that final gig? I don't remember this sort of like hostile environment that people talk about. I think people, when they go to a gig, they like to hear stuff that they know, that's for sure. And they didn't get that. I don't know if people, some people thought, well, it was taking the piss a little bit, you know. I quite liked it because we were already into the sort of dance scene and we were clubbing quite a bit. I could sort of get the connection. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I thought it was quite a good gig, you know? So many people, or, or at least the, the loud minority, Seemed to think it wasn't a great gig, you know. Maybe maybe it wasn't a great gig, but but I didn't think it was the worst gig. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, we're talking about something now that's like what thirty plus years later, yeah. obviously, right? And it's that thing where where was that actually what you were feeling at the time, or were you, were you just in it, kind of going, "Well, this isn't great," you know what I mean? Okay, I like this, I like this song because no, it's very rare that you go to a gig and kind of go, "God, that was god awful," regardless of yeah, anything, no, right? And I'm thinking maybe the Albert Hall's not. Probably wasn't the best venue for it in a way because it's um although it's a, acoustically a nice venue 
it's hard to create an atmosphere in there. Like, you know, it's not yeah. like a sweaty little box, is it? You know, it's a, it's a massive place. So maybe it was just the wrong venue for it. But that's a program that's a great program as well, you know? Yeah, I haven't got that one. That's a review yeah. one. That's been too expensive for me on eBay so but far. I, but one, one day. There must have been boxes of it somewhere, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently I haven't got them. That was a good program. Live, obviously, a fabulous band. So many people have talked about this diverse lineup whereby, you know, on occasions it will just be a few of them, like Glastonbury and Live Aid, but then they're bringing out the full brass. We've also got showbiz where there's a full orchestra. The fact they can dial it up and down is fascinating to me, but brilliant live. But on record, again, so many great pop singles, aren't there? Yeah, there are. I think especially with the Style Council, you, you listen to all those singles and they've all got something different going on. And I think... Weller was writing really sort of clever lyrics around that time. Like it was a really good time for him, I think. I think it is a shame that that, that last album did get rejected. I mean, I know it, it leads to better things. I do think that Polydor probably just didn't get it. You know, they just didn't get it. Whenever I think about that last album, and if that hadn't have been rejected, we probably wouldn't have got Has My Fire Really Gone Out? No. And for that alone, it's worth rejecting no. that album. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, think, I think it's almost like, those sort of things just happen. It's the same as splitting the jam. It's like, you know, things change. I mean, there must have been a time when, yeah, Paul must have thought that was, was it, you know, I, I, I presume. But, you know, it's just amazing how he, how he came back there. Yeah, well, here we are, like, talking about a solo career that is 30 years plus now. Yeah. And you were part of the crew again. So we're back on the road. The movement are a thing. And you're mixing being a fan and Paul Weller being, you know, doing new yeah, music I mean, as a solo artist with being back in the um, the merch yeah, side of things. Totally, totally out of the blue because, like, we didn't really speak to Brian much after because he liked a, a drink and a party. Like, we, we used to go around to his house in uh, Broxbourne. <laughs> uh, God, I'm just thinking of, like, um, we'd be out in the garden and uh, drinking Pims, he'd get the hose and start, you know, every, we'd all be soaking wet because he'd be spraying the hose. And then, <laughs> and then we, we would go in, he would, he'd be doing it inside as well, you know. He was, he was probably more rock and roll in those respects than anything we saw on the tours, like, you know. Well, it was probably the biggest house I'd seen at the time, like, you know, like, you know, a full table in his lounge, like, you know, and, and you didn't hit the walls when you queued. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was a fairly big room, like, you know, it's like, wow. And a sauna. Yeah, like, and, um, merch is the game I need to get into. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think it was. And, and he had this, he always had this thing with John. And again, I don't know how they, how they work, like, you know, what the deals were. But John would come out and say, how's it going? And Brian always had this thing and he, that we were told to, to do where, like, we would say, uh, not bad, not bad. <laughs> you know, you know. Were you playing cards with them? Was that something you were going to? Oh, no, no. I watched them quite a bit. Watched them take money off people and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people <laughs> during the um, those first couple of tours. There were a couple of nights on that tour. There was one night, sixteenth oh, of April, nineteen ninety one. They just played the uh, Birmingham Institute gig with the Paul Weller Movement with uh, Max Beasley and those lot, you know on the on the tour. And uh, we were back at the hotel, and I. Th- got a feeling it was Max's birthday the day after. So they did a sort of birthday thing for him there. Again, I don't know who organised it, but they had a like, totally un-PC stripper. <laughs> and it was like, and I, again, I found the photos. I've got of, of the stripper? <laughs> yeah, yeah, with Max and the stripper. <laughs> and a lot of um, whipped, cr- you know. Cream wow. They are available for a fee, Max, if you want to get in touch. <laughs> yeah, no. I've got the originals are in Hatton Garden. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but again, the sound of this band is, um, and, and he's, start, he's starting to play songs from the jam, so that must be great, yeah, connecting yeah. back with your youth again. Yeah. But the sound of this band is terrific, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it just like, you knew from those early gigs, even though they were very small, you just knew that Paul was back. I'm not too sure if he knew it at the time. I think he was still having a lot of doubts about where it was going. But And certainly on those tours, he was very relaxed. And I don't know if that came with not having all that, like, you know, pressure and baggage that he'd been carrying around with the jam and then the Star Council towards the end, you know, where there's that expectation. And, and I guess it was the 90s as well. So it was there maybe it was, he was in a different place, you know. But there was certainly, um, I think it was the Bowler Hat Hotel. I mean, we sort of like had a big, towards the end of that, one of those tours. And we were like um, after Liverpool Royal Court gig, I think it was. And we were back at the hotel. Kenny and John are taking all the hard-earned money off one of the caterers <laughs> down, down in the bar. And we upstairs, we had this big room party where, like, uh, everyone that was there was was in that room, like, you know. It was like – and it just went on all night, basically. And I got up the next day. We were driving around in our little Fiat Panda on those tours. We would be coming back to London from some, and we would, like – we would go to um, – uh, I forget the t-shirt place in um, Kentish Town. Fifth Column, we're a big t-shirt producer. So we used to go there and pick up more t-shirts and load the Fiat Panda with boxes of t-shirts and then drive back up you know, to wherever the next gig was. But after that Liverpool gig, the next gig was uh, Portsmouth. So long drive to Portsmouth. I think I spent that most of that journey with my head in a champagne bucket being sick. I was so hungover. <laughs> but, and then when we got down there they cancelled the gig <laughs> this is what drives so back <laughs> so we head back to London then <laughs> I've got a feeling that just the way that things work when they redid that gig like because that was another thing that they always went back and did when they, if a gig was cancelled they always went back and did it again like you know I've got a feeling that Ocean Colosseum might have might been one of the first gigs they supported these sort of things have a funny way of working out in the end, don't they? But yeah. that was a heavy night. <laughs> but, <laughs> and there yeah. were plenty of heavy nights, to be fair. I mean, I've, I've yeah. read Magic, his, his recent book, and he talks more probably than ever of the kind of excess of the 90s. That was yeah, pr- yeah. pretty full on, right? I didn't see much of that, but that was just one night that I, I can remember, you know. What were the big selling items then? So I mentioned we get in the solo years, we get the match day programs, which start pretty much from day one almost, don't they? You know, yeah, really early yeah, on. The program was a big, was a good seller. We didn't have any Weller solo socks. I don't remember those. No, no, we didn't. No, <laughs> they didn't revisit that or the scarf, did they? Yeah. And, and we only did again. I cannot, I haven't got the diaries. So I, I don't know when it, when it ended for us with, with Brian. I think it might have been after the first couple of tours. Obviously it was a success, you know. All already gone from sort of the small little um, university halls back up to Brixton Academy, those sort of halls. So it went up pretty quickly. I've got a feeling. I don't know if it if it's just because having lost so much, Paul was like, and John probably John was aware that other people were getting better deals and merchandising was changing. There were a couple of big companies that were doing merchandise for loads and loads of bands, and you'd sign telephone, you know, number deals with them, like a 10-year deal, five-year deal or whatever. And I don't think Brian could compete with that kind of upfront payment. And they, you know, went their separate ways, you know. Right. And I, don't, I don't know the, the story. But and that would have been, what, around Stanley Road type time, would it? It must have or been before. just before that, I think. Okay. I, mean, I, 
I think it might have been just before Wildwood around that time. So it's quite early in the rise back up. I remember like um, we were selling jam T-shirts at the gigs as well. And I, there's some people probably thinking, why were you doing that? You know, I don't know why they were doing it because because they were yeah. set, they were still sold. But I remember going around to um, uh, Fifth Column with my sound effects album because they didn't have the original artwork. So they were doing a reprint of the T-shirts and they, they needed... Uh, <laughs> well, they're they just scanning the in your album. So they, so they took my album like, and <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Brian had been with Paul since uh, early Jam. I don't know if he was there right at the start. And you and Joe then are back to being ordinary fans, yeah, if yeah, you like, yeah? Yeah, except with like the a, a few little perks because obviously like, because Brian was quite, well, and Kenny were quite close like on tours, like we would quite often end up sitting at the bar with Kenny and John and, and Brian, we'd got to know Kenny quite a bit. In fact, Joe just spoke to Kenny. This this actually just phoned just while I was oh, really? waiting for you to come. Kenny phoned, yeah. That's nice. Like, you know, he's... Uh, give him my love. Give him my best wishes. <laughs> I, I texted him the other day. He hasn't texted back. <laughs> Kenny was always looking out for Paul. Whoever you were, Kenny, he'd be the wall between you and Paul. And I think that, you know, and I, I can totally understand why. And um, I think it put him in a difficult position Although that was the role it was, you know, but it just meant that even when we were doing those first Paul Weather Movement tours, Brian would be pestering Kenny for our access, all areas passes, and he'd be like, well, do they need them? Do they, you know, he's, he was like very, very, this is a job and we're not having a, it's not a playtime, like, you know, and, um, and I think that was like, you know, must have been quite hard, you know, and I think probably why so many people, you know, say, oh, Kenny Wheeler, you know. Yeah, that was his job. Like, job yeah. like, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah. and he did that very well for Paul, I think. Yeah, you had to know when to be the blocker and when to give access yeah, yeah. And, and all that, yeah. you know. It's um, yeah. particularly third time around because it's different. There aren't the sound checks. It's not that exact same access to fans. Although, right. like I said, in the Europe gigs recently, Paul's coming out and saying hello to people and stuff like that. But it, it is different. But my goodness me, I mean, what, what a bunch of records, singles, albums we've had over this solo journey. Yeah. If you were to pick a few highlights for you gig-wise, uh, you and Joe together, where would you go? Uh, gig-wise, that first tour on the solo was like, it's like asking me which track I... Yeah, we'll get to that I question. Mean, I know that's coming, but uh, <laughs> it's still probably changing in my head now. Yeah. But, like, you know, it's the same sort of thing. I remember during the 90s, coming out of gigs, just thinking, oh, my God, how can that get better than that? Like, you know, it's just that feeling of, like, oh, my God, coming out of a concert and you're absolutely buzzing. As a band, they were just so tight. It was like they, you'd think they could just turn up anywhere and just do it you know they were just so on it all the time those gigs around like live wood and i watched the glastonbury would have been no what 95 the other day for something just the sheer energy that's involved in those gigs you must be like a, an olympic athlete for christ's yeah. sake picking one is difficult those early tours and then right you know yeah wildwood and that whole live wood thing i mean if you listen to the live wood album that is a, a great live album isn't it you know it's like yeah yeah. And the, the videos of it are just like, I, re I really do think they do nearly say it all about that time. Like, you know, they were, and I know some people didn't like that, the sort of more rocking out bit. They were a phenomenal band. It's those memories you, you want to kind of bottle them and capture them and, and yeah. be able to, you know, we, we all wish our memories were better and that we could yeah, visualize well, being in there again, don't we? You know, I just wish I'd kept more merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> we used to say, Oh, Brian, I quite like that one. Can we have a couple of them? Yeah, yeah, you know, but I, I, 
you know, it wouldn't really have hurt Brian if we'd taken one of everything, like, you know. I don't know if you saw Shane Juson when he was on the podcast. I put it on the show notes for the podcast. It's got like loads of the solo t-shirts right from way back. Have a little look. That was one of the yeah. things as well. The visuals were so strong and the Simon yeah. Halfer and stuff was so strong around that time as well, wasn't it? Yeah, see, I, I'm not sure. I think when Brian was doing the merchandise, I know Simon would come, with, he would chat with Simon quite a bit, like, and I think a lot of the stuff was coming directly from Simon, some of those ideas, like, you know. I don't know. I think when it went more commercial on the merchandise, I'm not sure how much input Simon and Paul had on those, or maybe, I don't know, that's something you can ask. Yeah, someone. I just think it became a little bit more generic, the merchandise, and... It also it, seems to become a bit like you'd get stuff that was solely based on the album. Do you know what I mean? So your T-shirt yeah, for Heavy yeah. Soul would be the cover, or you'd get maybe the heart off of um, Stanley Road, whereas before, I think you were getting lots of different elements that were plays on some of the yeah. different pe- bits and pieces and stuff, particularly that really early solo stuff, and even the Star Council, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it did absolutely did change. What a fascinating world to have been part of, yeah? Though, yeah? For a while, I, th- I was thinking to myself, like, as we were going through all these, like, you know, album after album and just thinking, God, this is, you know, but especially that those first solo albums, the first four, which I think when you listening to the uh, Brendan Lynch mob stuff that you did with, with uh, Brendan, like, like, those first four albums were like, you know, superb albums. And for like a five-year period as well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that was, those live gigs were very, very, very good. But then those jam gigs, they they were they were just different. They were just different. They were a time and a place. And uh, certainly when I was at fourteen, fifteen, the jam were where it was at. You know, and mm. that, that energy, that just the whole every part of clothing just dripping in sweat. You know, down the front, like you know, I wasn't doing that in eighty five. So it was a different experience. I was just remembering a um, we were at Damon from Ocean Colour scene after one of the um, Scottish gigs. He had his wedding anniversary party, and it was at Earth Castle or Earth. I'm not sure how it's pronounced even. But we were all back at that castle, and they had a big, they had a sort of big hall connected, like a dance hall connected to the hotel, like their castle. I remember clearly John Kenny and uh, Steve Craddock's dad. There was a stage in one corner, and they were set up on the stage having their card school. We were sat down, and Paul came up and he started chatting like he did and he like you know he was just so comfortable talking to people and he he just wanted to know you like you know he's just such a genuine bloke such a genuine bloke and it was around that time he was saying oh how do you think i've changed you know you've been around for a long time how do you think i've changed you know do you think i've mellowed do you think and i don't know where that was coming from for him whether he was going through something himself like he was so what do you think of the you know the gigs and stuff and it was like oh i think they're brilliant (laughs) but i remember saying to him and this is the other thing that i think that sort of ever changing moods type thing i remember saying to him and i think it was around the livewood time because it was um it was a time where he was he got back into using feedback he would stand with his with his back to the crowd and he would be playing the sort of like feedback off his you know off his amp like you know and i said i'm loving the, the gigs at the moment and the the way you're using the feedback and and he really sort of like just in an instant went like changed and went i'll be doing that forever like you know I said, oh, like as if like that's not a new thing I think that David Minchella one, they were, they didn't they miss the flight or something? I can't remember. Somebody yeah, mentioned it on the podcast. I, I just can't remember when that was. Yeah, Chris Evans was there and a few other people. 
because I guess they'd done the uh, riverboat song. Of course, yes. We're talking late 90s then, right? Like 97, 98, something like that, probably. Yeah, I don't know when that was. But. Yeah. David, this has been so lovely hearing your stories on the podcast. Before we wrap up, before I get to those two final questions, we should say thanks to Joe as well. I'd dedicate this to Joe if you allow it. I feel bad that we've mentioned her so much without her, her appearing, but you know, I, I feel like she's been with us here in spirit. <laughs> Because Dan wants to say hello. Hello, <laughs> hello Joe. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you. How's it gone? Oh, very well. No, I, f- I feel bad because we've mentioned you a few times, Joe. Just okay. a few. All right. Okay. And, and I felt bad that we wouldn't get, you know, that you were hiding a word. I, I assumed you were out. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was busy in the kitchen. I didn't, I'm, I'm keeping it a big surprise. I didn't want to hear what was going on. So. Oh, here you go. Look, with a big reveal, Joe. So you introduced this man to Mr. Weller in the first place. You introduced him to the jam. And look at this journey you've been on, both of you. It's incredible. It's the best ever. Yeah. <laughs> and we still love it, which is great. Yeah, yeah. It's, it brings us so much joy still, all of it. We talked about so much on this podcast, from, from the love of the music, the gigs, the merchandise stuff, all that stuff. Because you've been all over the place seeing them. We talked about the UK, but you've been overseas and seen Weller, right? Was that from day one, from early on? Was that the Style Council, the Jam? Was that Paul Weller solo? What was that? We've done a few overseas gigs. Yeah. The first one we went to was Style Council, Brussels, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, Liège. Liège, sorry, Liège. Yeah. Which was yeah. brilliant and hilarious. Yeah. There's a stories behind that as well, isn't there? Yeah, because we, again, we, we'd got to chat to um, Steve Sedelnik quite a bit. And like Steve White and they're just uh, two Steves, are just the best people. Yeah, like, they you know, really are. They are the best people. They really are. So we turned up at the, the Age gig and took us backstage and like, you know, and treated us really, really well. Like as we just turned up, like, you know. And then after the gig, we went back on the coach to the hotel. And we're driving around these little streets in Liège in, in this in the coach with uh, I think Tracy and Soul Squad were were supporting, which is why Steve Sedonik was there. I think they got to this little corner and there was a car parked on the corner and they couldn't get the coach around the corner. <laughs> so Kenny and the security guys have got out and basically bumped this car out of the way onto the pavement so they could get the coach round. <laughs> you make Kenny sound like Jeff Capes. Yeah, well. <laughs> Well, he, he was, I think he was bigger than Jeff Capes, you know? <laughs> Which he isn't anymore, of course. No. <laughs> yeah, he was then. Back at the hotel, we've, we've been drinking in the bar and we're just total fans then, like, you know, and it's like, oh my God. We didn't have anywhere to stay, so we, we slept on the floor of, um, oh, I'm trying to think who it was now, percussion player that used to play with Steve. Oh, Gary, oh, Wallace. Gary Wallace. Gary Wallace. Yeah. Gary Wallace. Oh, funny. Yeah, from the, the Elf and Funk Federation. And Martin Speak, the saxophonist. Oh, right. Okay. Lovely, (laughs) lovely people. And they let us sleep on their floor. And then next morning, we were still in their room and there's a knock at the door. It's born to lose at the door. (laughs) 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 Are they coming down for breakfast? (laughs) We went down and we said goodbye and off we went. But I don't know why we didn't do the rest of that tour. I think because we were working. Oh, that's the thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. How funny. And what about the US? You went to the States, right? We did a few years. You to it. Oh, oh, Joe's off again. All right. <laughs> Lovely to meet you, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> little guest appearance, little cameo. They were doing a sort of world tour, I think. And uh, Ryan had said, after the uh, UK gigs, Ryan had said, oh, do you fancy a trip to the US? Like, Paul Weller movement. Okay, this is the Paul Weller movement. Okay. This is Paul Weller solo, like, you know, December 91. So it's like, do we want, you know, of course we get <laughs> No, no, we're all right. No, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so like, um, they've flown off and, and we were just flying out to the, to the America gigs. I was working at Greenpeace UK 
posterior, like, you know, membership and stuff like, you know, in the little basement. A call came through to me and it's, it was Kenny. And I didn't know Kenny at that stage, like, you know, not, not very well, like, you know, it's, uh, and it's like, yeah, it's Kenny here. Like, um, we've got a problem with, um, one of Steve's, I think it might have been a hi-hat pedal or something like that. And we need to get another one out to America. If we've got someone to deliver one to you, could you bring it out? I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. I've no idea how heavy this is or how big it is or whatever. But yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And he said, right, I've got some other things to work out, but I'll get back to you if, if I need you to pick it up from somewhere or if, when they're going to deliver it. And like, it's like, oh my God, this is, this is really serious now. Like, to go to America, like, you know, and nothing more came of that, but it just really hyped us even more, like, you know, it's like, <laughs> pressure's on. Yeah. Then we, we flew out to, uh, LA. Brian had given us the address of the hotel. We get there and it's like, it's the, the Ritz Colton in Pasadena, like the band, because they'd flown from Japan. And in fact, I only just sort of realized how close that whole American tour was to not happening. I think it was Jacko was talking to you about the, um, that flight from Japan. That's right. Yeah. 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 Not liking flying, had taken like sleeping tablets and loads of alcohol and had a bit of a crazy turn on the flight. I don't know if that involved moving items of clothing or... or, or <laughs> oh, the story's getting more interesting by it, the moment. But it was, I think there was a time, there was a time where he had to be restrained and he was, um, it was like, you know, if this doesn't, doesn't calm down, you won't be getting into America. Right. Wow. That kind of seriousness, like, you know. <laughs> so we didn't know any of that at the time. So it's like, you know, it may never have happened, but they did get there. I remember that first night we went to an Italian restaurant or the band like, and, uh, and Paul was like in his, I don't know if he was a bit jet lagged or whatever, but he, he had a little t-shirt on and he was freezing cold. And Joe had a, like a Harrington jacket. He put that on like, and it, it came up to his elbows, like, but, <laughs> um, but he still kept it on, which was quite funny. Yeah. We spent oh, a whole week at the Rich Colton lounging by the pool with Ellen, Zeke, Camille, Jacko, five nights at the Ritz Colton, I think it was. I know there is a picture of all the crew and the band, and well, I've never seen it. We were in that picture, and I've, I've never seen it. I don't know who it was taking it. No way of tracking it down, but it did exist. And merchandise was quite slow there, really. Brian didn't really need us there as, to sell merchandise. You know? It was a great treat. They did one show in New York after that, and uh, we stayed in New York. They stayed at the Drake. Again, the first night, they had no rooms for us, so we slept on Simon, the lighting guy, slept on his floor. Oh, no, he gave us his room, actually, and he shared with someone else. <laughs> so, again, like, such ge- generous people, like, you know. Wow, this is fantastic. We went, out, we went out clubbing with, I've got some nice pictures of, um, we went out clubbing with um, Camille, Zeke, Jacko, and Helen to this, uh, it was Giant Step, which was like the Talking Loud Acid Jazz equivalent in the US. I think, I forget the guy, Bernstein. Marcus Bernstein, he was like the founder of it. And he was there and he, I've got a nice picture with him and Joe, with Zeke, Camille and Helen at the club. Like, And uh, when we ended off uh, going to someone that Camille knew, some, a friend of his who lived in New York, into some flat, like and, until the early hours. And that's really nice people. Every single one in, in that band was just top, top people. Weather has surrounded himself not just with great musicians, but like just top people as well. As you know, listening to the podcast, I've got two questions for you before you go. Okay. So, number one, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council, or Solo, David. What are you going to go with? Yeah, I think I'm going to go with the Jam just because of all the connections that it's got and the sort of like, I think it would be something sort of like, uh, 
although I like the way they change I, I do I just love the um the sort of like power of sort of set the house ablaze and when I listen to it on dig the new green I just it just takes me right back there so it'll yeah. be that power and that that the jam gave Set the house ablaze. We haven't had that on the podcast, but that is a corker. And you're right, that version, the Dig the Newbury version is fantastic. Yeah. Final question. So as you know, the purpose of this podcast is to get to that interview with Paul Weller. It was my one big regret from being a radio presenter and then giving up my career as a radio presenter. One big regret, not getting to interview Mr. Weller. So if it happens off the back of this podcast, what should I ask him? Yeah, again, I've had a long time to think about this. <laughs> I must say it's... It is the most, it's probably more difficult than picking a track because you just pick a track and it's like, you know, it'll yeah. be a different one tomorrow. But asking him a question, it's like, um, I probably want to go outside of his music, his clothes. I want to ask him, has he developed any hobbies outside of those core things that he does? Like, uh, you know, has he got a secret model railway tucked away <laughs> in the back barn? Has he got a nice little allotment patch? Is he into jam making? Has he developed anything outside of, family and music and fashion nice nice a little hobby there must also be as a father there must also be things that he has to do with the kids like do you know what i mean it's like yeah yeah you know, like making the space rocket out of toilet rolls and things yeah, like that, yeah. that you do you know it's all that crap. a fixed model or two and got into it <laughs> yeah 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 He's got he loves a bit of the Lego. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant question. <laughs> David, this has been so lovely. Thank you to you. Thank you to Joe as well for that cameo. And thanks. I mean, this has been lovely to hear your experiences of, as fans, but also these connections, the merchandise stuff has been really interesting and fascinating as well. So, man, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure. My thanks once again to David Rowe for joining me on the podcast. Cheers to Joe as well. Much appreciated. Lovely to chat to you too. What a story. Around 450 live shows, some incredible connections with the Weller setup. And I tell you, this is one of those ones where you have to dive in to the show notes for the podcast as well. Not only have we got exclusive images for you on the website, but also some of the stories, some of the elements that we just didn't have time for on this episode as well. To do dive in, head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, head to my store. You can find our own exclusive official merchandise. I should get David and Joe on the case in terms of selling this stuff. For goodness sake, it'd be brilliant. You can find our mugs, our tote bags, our mobile phone covers, our t-shirts, even our sweatshirts for the winter as well. Just head on there to our store. And whilst you're there, if you fancy it, you can buy a virtual coffee as well. Doing that gets you a shout out on the episode of the podcast. Grant, thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Colin and Jennifer Marsh, who say loving the podcast. It's insightful and something I look forward to every week. Well, thank you. Hello also to Martin Morrill. Hello, Brian G. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hi, Mike Steer. Much appreciated. Hello to Ron, who says great show and super guests. Thanks, Ron. Thanks to all of you for getting involved. If you'd like to support us financially, it's always appreciated. The cost of this thing with the website, the Zoom subscriptions and all that kind of stuff are nuts. So really do appreciate you heading into my store and getting a virtual coffee for three quid. You can even subscribe and do it monthly if you fancy as well. You can get in touch on social media as well. You'll find me on Twitter. It's at WellerFanPod. Actually, is it called Twitter anymore? Is it X now? I'm so, it's so confusing, right? But anyway, at WellerFanPod, get in touch. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.